May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Clive Christian number one. It's the most expensive perfume in the world. It says so right on the box. It literally says this. Clive Christian number. If you bought a box, it would say this. Clive Christian number one. Right below it, the most expensive perfume in the world. It's part of the tagline that they have, you know. It's not like it'll make you smell great. or it, It's the most expensive perfume in the world. It is the fragrance that the former Kate Middleton wore on the day that she was married to Prince William. And uh, in, in London, in Westminster Abbey, wasn't it? Uh, no, no coincidence that she wore it in an Anglican church? I'm just saying. You know, the most expensive perfume in the world. Uh, I digress. Um, uh, I, I was looking this week to see how much a bottle of Clive Christian Number 1 costs. I went on the internet and checked it out. Uh, you can buy a 1.7 ounce bottle for $3,000. You could get a small version for eight or nine hundred, you know, you know, just in case, you know, that that one, three thousand um, dollars. I mean, I suppose if you're fixing to become part of the royal family, first of all, you wouldn't say I'm fixing to become part of the royal family if you were fixing to become part of the royal. Family. But if you are about to become part of the royal family, you know, a spritz of an uber expensive perfume, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But um, but really, three thousand dollars for a bottle? I mean, it's a little extravagant, isn't it? Do you know that many parts of the world, the average salary is $2 a day? $2 a day for, for many people who live in the world, which means that four people in Haiti or um, in Mozambique or Burundi, um, it would take them an entire year's salary just to collectively to buy just one bottle. And then they would still have to borrow 200 bucks from a friend somewhere, you know. It still probably wouldn't have enough money to do it. I thought about that. You know what it would be like if, if four guys pulled together and said, you know, we're going we're gonna to save all of our resources this entire year. <laughs> and we're going to buy this little bottle of perfume, you know. How absolutely absurd that would be. You know, we're not going to eat or, or have any shelter or anything like that. But we're going to buy this one bottle of perfume. I mean, even for people who can afford this, it's a luxury, you know. Even for those who, who could, you know, make this purchase, it's still, it's still not something that you would use every day. Because it's too expensive, for one thing. But, but on the other hand, there's also another thing that, that the scent is so, I don't know, I've never smelled it, but it's supposed to be so amazing that, um, that you wouldn't want to wear that out, you know. You wouldn't want... Uh, the familiarity to breed contempt. You know, you, you need this a little bit of, of, of extra something every now and then. And so you wouldn't wear it every day. To do so would be a waste. And who would waste something so precious as that? Uh, when I grew up, uh, I heard a lot of this waste not, want not. Did you all hear that from when you were growing up? <laughs> My grandmother lived through the Depression my mother lived through a mother who lived through the depression, you know. Um, so you kind of get that stuff kind of comes your way. And, and, and we never had many uh, 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 resources, you know, that much of resources or whatever. So it, it, was always, um, it was always a sense in our family that, that, that people who were extremely wasteful were held with some level of contempt. Um, it gave me a good contempt for our government uh, as I was growing up. <laughs> Just a few instances that perhaps you, you've heard of. The National Science Foundation last year spent $856,000 teaching mountain lions how to walk on a treadmill. 
<laughs> Can you believe that? First of all, I want to know who's holding the leash. Um, but then, you know, $856,000. The National Science Foundation also spent $200,000 last year to discover why and how Wikipedia is sexist. <laughs> Which came as a complete shock to me. I didn't know. Um, the National Institute of Health, you're not going to believe this, $335,525 on a study to find out if couples are happier when the woman calms down after an argument. I read. <laughs> yeah, you're getting it. Marriages that were the happiest were the ones in which the wives were able to calm down quickly during marital conflict. Yeah, I'm not going to add a single word to that. Um, You've heard the other things, right? $10,000 toilet seats, $100,000 hammers, $80,000 on lobby art at the VA office in Phoenix or whatever. You know, you've heard these things. Money that could have been spent on something useful was wasted or just spent when it didn't need to be. And I wonder, how could someone do something like that? How could someone, you know, just waste that sort of resources? And if you were reading the gospel closely today, if you were reading it through the, through the lens of an ancient Near Eastern person, you might be tempted to think something very similar is going on in the home of Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Uh, these two sisters... Um, you think one of them might have worked for the Department of the Interior <laughs> because she is, um, she is really uh, going on a big expense spree. This, you remember the backstory, a little bit of it. In chapter 11 of John's Gospel, we discover that this fellow Lazarus, he has two sisters, Martha and Mary, and Lazarus has fallen ill. Um, he's so sick that people have been called in to pray for him and, and to prepare to mourn for him. Um, the, the sisters send word to Jesus, your friend is very ill, sick unto death. Please come. Um, But he doesn't. He doesn't take off and leave for that. He's in no hurry to get to the home. And when he finally does arrive, they find that that Lazarus has been dead for four days. You know the story, perhaps, though. When all hope is gone, not all hope is gone. Jesus' seventh and final miracle performed in the Gospel of John is performed in, in John chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. That was sort of the backstory to chapter 12, which begins something like this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. (laughs) Well, I'll bet they did. I mean, you know, if you raise somebody from the dead, you deserve a dinner, don't you? I mean, a feast giving in your honor, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. And, um, And I don't know if they had an ancient Near Eastern equivalent to, for he's a jolly good fellow. But if they did, that's probably being sung in the, in the room, right? I mean, as Jesus comes in, the, the food is out, the people are singing, it's a festive moment. And John tells us Martha served. I get the sense that Martha is kind of famous for her service in, in the, 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 the world of Jesus. That, that, that people hear that, you know, Martha's uh, serving the meal, they're, they're there, you know, they want, they want to get in on some of that. That's, that's some good food, some good service, and, and they're excited about that. But Mary is nowhere to be found. She's AWOL, you know. I think Martha thinks, of course she is, you know, um, Always leaving me to do the work. If you read in Luke's gospel in the tenth chapter, uh, Martha gets a little bit upset with it. You know, why doesn't? Why don't you make my sister help me? You know, she says to Jesus. Mary's gone in this story. She she's disappeared. Um, 
This has happened before also in, in chapter 11. When Jesus shows up after Lazarus has died, before he's been raised from the dead, Martha runs out to greet Jesus as he comes, and John says, Mary stayed in the house. I get the sense that Mary's angry with Jesus. In fact, she, she comes and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That she has this sort of you know, angst about it when he finally does arrive. And so, not surprisingly, Martha's serving the supper's being given in honor of Jesus, and Mary's nowhere to be found, and nobody knows where she is. But we know the truth. We know that somewhere in the house, or outside the house, or somewhere in the, in the vicinity, Mary has left. She has gone searching for this treasure that she has hidden, where only she knows it is. It's a, it's a little bottle. She's saving it for her wedding day. It is the most prized possession that she has. It is the most expensive thing that she will ever own in her entire life. From cradle to grave, the very most valuable you know, um, asset that she has, she's going to get. And now here you have Lazarus sitting at the table, smiling, laughing, eating, talking with all these men who are filling this small room. There's a banquet going on, there's a good time... And, And in walks Mary. She's not carrying a tray of food. You know, there are no pitchers of wine or water or anything. She she comes in and she has a small bottle about the size of a soda can in her hand. And she walks up to Jesus and she falls at his feet. And she opens this bottle and she begins to pour it on his feet. The fragrance is so intense, sandalwood and and myrrh, it begins to fill the room and and every conversation stops around the table, doesn't it? Every conversation stops and every eye is focused on this woman who is kneeling at the feet of... Women weren't allowed in there, you know. They They were allowed to come in with food and drink. They weren't allowed to come in and stay. It wasn't their place. And Mary's staying here. And it's, it's a bit scandalous. And she's at Jesus' feet and she's pouring this perfume on and it's filling the room. And all of a sudden, everybody knows what she's pouring there. This bottle is worth 300 denarii, $300. You know, an average day's wage is a dollar. She is pouring a year's salary on his feet in a world of peasants. The most expensive, most valuable thing that she would have... But then it goes from being kind of unbelievable to almost, um, well, even beyond scandalous. She does something nobody expects. She reaches up and she pulls the covering off of her hair. There's, a, um, there's an old rabbinic uh, uh, story where this woman is asked, um, she says, uh, someone asks her, you have seven sons who have all become rabbis. How is that possible? The woman's answer is, because the rafters of this house have never seen the hairs of my head. Mary pulls the cover back from her head and exposes her hair, which is the height of scandal. And she bends down and begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with the hair of her head. If this sounds to you strangely intimate, almost bordering on the erotic, you understand rightly what's going on here. This is, this is beyond scandalous. It is, it is 
gasp-worthy. It's, it is cringe-worthy. It is, oh my word, what is this woman doing? And Judas saves the day, <laughs> doesn't he? Judas, saves, he gets us off the hook. He gets us to, to, to focus on something else. And he says, you know, couldn't we have sold this perfume and, and given the money to the poor? John doesn't like Judas. You know, he, by the time he writes this gospel, um, he still hasn't gotten over the whole Judas thing. You know, you know how you know this? Every time you find Judas's name in John's gospel, it sounds like something like this. Judas, that son of a skunk who betrayed Jesus. You know, this is his little parenthetic remark that he gives every time he mentions Judas's name. Judas, you know, the one who betrayed Jesus. It, it, he says this. But Judas has a point, doesn't he? I mean... A year's salary, couldn't that have helped a lot of poor people? Besides, does this woman really need to disgrace herself in front of everybody, humiliate herself, act in such a a scandalous way with such tawdry behavior? Why in the world would she do this? Why indeed would she do this? First reason, Jesus says it's prophetic. She She is prophesying, she is foretelling my death, and she is anointing my body for burial. I'm alive now, but she knows. Soon I'll be dead. There's a prophetic mystery in there. But I think the second one, the one that goes unmentioned, but is clearly spoken is this, that Mary is filled with such gratitude. She is filled with such gratitude, such adoration for Jesus. She saw her brother die. And she saw Jesus bring him back from the death. She back from the grave. She knew that he could. He, he is above everything. Now nothing in all of heaven or earth can can stand against her. She has hope where there was no hope. Not even death itself has a claim on her. And this just erupts in in joyful adoration, in 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 lavish gratitude. That she cannot hold it back. Now, now think about the portrait that John paints. The juxtaposition you have on one hand, you have Mary. This worshiper who gives her very best. Who gives the very best thing she has to offer. Not just this gift of perfume, but herself. On the other hand, you have this guy who can only think about how he could have lifted a few coins. If that had been put in the treasury. How he could exploit the poor as a reason for giving the money into the treasury. He actually would use the poor to advance his own cause. This is the juxtaposition we have. This are the the, the two portraits. The one who is changed by grace and the one who sneers at the one who's been changed by grace. Well. You probably know where we're going with this, right? I mean, when you look at this portrait, it invites you to come in and be part of it. It says, where do we see ourselves? Where do I see myself? Am I the sort of person, as I look at this uh, portrait, who disdains self-respect and gives my all to Christ? Am I that kind of person? Or am I the kind of person who could piously speak about my concern for the poor while really I have no concern for them at all? Am I the kind of person who would give my very best, the very best that I have, or would I try to keep my very best for myself? Am I the kind of person who would willingly humiliate myself for the sake of Christ? 
or am I more concerned about what other people think about me? These are tough questions. These are questions that kind of put us into a corner, don't they? They, they make us uh, not want to answer them. But I want you to notice something. I, want to, I was talking to a friend this week about, uh, about this service and, and about the collect and how I love this collect. You know, the, the collect sort of collect all the ideas of the Mass, the, 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 all the Scripture readings, and they pull them together into a, a, a crystallized prayer. And we have this great gift in the, in the, in the Anglican world that, that Cranmer gave us of these collects where he just, he kind of saw all this and, and brought it together and, and, and found ancient prayers and, and, and penned some. And look at this prayer. If you, if, Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. If I ask for a show of hands, how many of you here believe that you were born and are a sinner? You better all have your hands up because I've been around your houses, you know. I, and I'm here with you, right? Who can bring into order our affections? Who can, who can bend our will? God alone. God alone can do this. So here's the, here's the petition, right? Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. When I was speaking to my friend, I, I, I said, what if we change the word grace into gift? What if we change the word grace into gift and see how it works? Um, it, Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people the gift to love what you command. All that works, doesn't it? Give us the gift to love what you command. Because we can't do it by ourselves. It's impossible. That's the good news this morning. Judas was not condemned because he failed to see the goodness of God. And Mary's not blessed because she saw it. God, the, here's the good news, that God can turn Judas's into Mary's. <laughs> That's the good news. That's what we're shouting about. That, that God can transform us. That He can make us into different kind of people. If only we would see it and but ask. If only we would see our need and but ask, God would do it for us. But if we saw it and failed to ask, oh, what a waste that would be. Indeed, what a huge waste that would be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.